love for you to turn to Esther chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning in our text. And uh, like you said, uh, if you're joining us for the very first time, we've been uh, spending our fall uh, in the book of Esther. And so you're here for the last message on Esther. And so you might be a little lost. So just to recap for you, Esther is essentially a story about how God uses a young woman to save the people of God from a ethnic cleansing. And so we've just covered most of the story, and we're going to finish up uh, today with the last message, talking about a celebration called Purim. Now, here's the deal. How many of you have heard a message on Purim? Ah, not a hand goes up. All right, well... Good, we're in good company because I've never preached a message on Purim before. So it's going to be good. I can't think of a better way to end Esther and to begin uh, the Christmas season. So uh, all I want to do today is I actually just want to do four things real quick. And then I want to, I want to have Rebecca share a little bit about a story that got a, or a salvation story uh, later on, all right? So well, what I want to do is I just want to answer these three questions real quick. What is Purim? How do, why do they call it Purim? How is it celebrated? And what does it have to do with my relationship with Jesus today? So let's begin, and uh, I'm going to just recap real quick for you what had happened. Now, if you remember... Esther has divulged or pleaded to the king, Xerxes, about this grand plan that Haman has uh, instituted to kill all the Jewish people in the land of Persia. Naturally, uh, Xerxes gets mad at that because that means his wife, uh, Esther, is going to die too. And so, uh, in a, I don't know if this would be a smart move, but in a way to protect her hus- his husband, he kills Haman. And what winds up happening is this plan still to kill all the Jew, Jews is still in place. So last week we talked about what they did. And what they did was that Esther and Mordecai made a decree on behalf of the king that if anyone attacked the Jewish people, the Jewish people could defend themselves. And so we read in chapter 9 that that's exactly what they did. Okay? First in the city. They did... You can read about it from uh, uh, verses 4 to 12. Is they attack, people come in the city of Susa and they attack the Jewish people. And the Jews, they uh, report back to the king that the king, that they have defended themselves against 500 attackers. And the king kind of does a spit take. I don't know if you see it in the verse here, but he just kind of goes, he just kind of goes, he's surprised. He goes, if they killed that many people in the city, how many people are they killing over the nation? So they defend in the city first, and then they descend nationwide. It says this in uh, 16 to 17. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's province also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from the enemies, and they killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hand on the plunder. So remember I was talking about that last week. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day a day of feasting and gladness. I highlighted that for a reason. But the Jews who were in the city, Susa, gathered on the 13th day, and on the 14th, and they rested on the 15th, making that a day of celebration and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who lived in the rural towns, 
hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness, feasting, and a holiday, a day as, and as a day unto which they send gifts of food to one another. Now, I don't know if you've caught it through Esther. I remember you remember me telling you that at the beginning of the series, there's a lot of food and drinking in this book. In fact, I would actually argue there's an excessive amount of parties that happen in this book. And if you're really a student of Esther, what you would notice is that the plot actually doesn't move along unless it happens at a party. Every time that there is a banquet or festival in the book of Esther, it moves along. There are at least 10 different occasions where there's some sort of feast or in Esther, and the plot moves along in the book. And that's not on, that's not on accident. Why the author did that is, is because of one reason. And if you remember me telling you at the beginning of the series, I told you that Christians generally have a problem with this book. Uh, historically, for the 2,000 years that, it's, that Christians have been around. And the reason is, is be, the first 700 years, this was never preached from. And part of the reason is, is all the festivities that you see in this book. Okay? But for Jews, if you came from a Jewish tradition, you love the book of Esther. Because Esther sets up and it talks about all these parties and all these festivals to set up the biblical idea of Purim. The, the book of Esther begins and ends with a party. Do you remember how I told you the story started? How did the story start? With a party. What was that party about? <sighs> to praise how much the king is awesome and how he's the best king in the entire world, right? At the end of the story, though, it's a different story. They throw a different kind of party. And it was called Purim. Purim is established. Now, what is Purim? Well, simply stated earlier that Purim is a, I don't know, is a mandatory holiday to celebrate salvation. Okay? Now, you might be saying, well, Dan, that doesn't make any sense because we, in the story, we haven't had got to Jesus yet and we haven't talked about salvation yet, but it's, it's not that kind of salvation. They're talking about be, they are talking about celebrating the idea that they were delivered from Haman's plan of destruction. You can read about it here. It means that uh, in uh, Esther chapter 9, verses 20, all the way down, it says this. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Hazarus. So he sent this letter out nationwide. And remember what I told you about Persia? Persia is physically around, maybe a little bit smaller than the continental United States. So this letter is going far and wide in a nation that doesn't have any highways or cars or anything like that. So I'm telling you that because it's a big deal. Like you don't send messages like this out unless it's important. Okay? So it went over through the old nation and obligating them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year, year by year. They were to do this every year. And as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and then if you skip down to verse 26, it says this, Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all the, that, that was written in this letter, 
and of what they had faced in this manner, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring, and all who joined them, that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, in every province, in every city, and that these days of Purnam should never fail into disuse among the Jews. Nor should, they be, uh, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among the descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abigail, and Mordecai, the, the Jew, gave full written authority, confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to 127 provinces in the, in the, in the kingdom of Azazarus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at the appointed seasons, as Mordecai the, Jew, Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring in regard to their fast and lamenting, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim. Long story short, a short way of saying that is, they made a law or a decree that every year you are to celebrate the fact that the people were saved. And it was to happen year after year, generation after generation, city after city, and to this day, it still happens. Okay. Now, why do they call it Perm? Well, uh, Cliff already talked about it. And the reason they call it Perm is essentially it's named after Per. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about this. Okay? In Esther chapter 3, verse 7, like uh, what Cliff said, what winds up happening is, if you recall in the story, Haman hates the Jewish people. And so what he does is he goes to a bunch of people and asks them to throw dice to determine the day in which they are to kill them. Now, you need to understand this. This is not necessarily the kind of throwing the dice that you and I think of it. There's a lot of spirituality tied to this. Okay, So the reason that I point this out is because essentially when Haman plans the day of destruction it is a day picked by demonic influence it is a day that is sought out by demonic influence it is a day that is <clears throat> that is invented I would argue by seeking out occultic or demonic oppression so it's a day that I would argue to celebrate evil because you can bet that if Haman had that if Haman had gone through with his plan and it would have it would have gone through at least on Haman's side of the equation he would be happy there would be celebrating at the idea of one of the earliest versions of the holocaust that's what he was doing that's evil that's demonic you remember what i told you about the book of esther that everything that happens in the book of Esther, everything that happens is an exact flip of what happened in the first part of the book. Okay? That's not on coincidence. Okay? At the start of the story, Haman is promoted. At the end of the story, Mordecai is promoted. At the start of the story, Persians could kill the Jews. At the end of the story, Jews could fight back. The start of the story starts with Hazazarus' greatness. The very last verses are talking about Mordecai's greatness. The whole thing is turning is a big flip. And it's kind of this idea that what winds up happening is that God takes what is meant for evil 
and turns it into something that is good. And that's exactly what they're doing with Purim, is they are taking a day that is a dark, evil, demonic day, and they are flipping it as a day to glorify God. And that's really cool. No one's saying amen to that. That's really cool, because what that means is that no matter what evil comes against us, there is nothing that God can't flip, or there's no evil that God is more powerful than God, that God can take what is meant for evil and turn it around for good. And I'm specifically thinking of the cross here. eh? The cross is a great example of how you're taking something that is intended to kill, maim, and destroy, and from it we have life. Okay? So that's Purim. It's, that's why they call it that. Because it's the day that God flipped everything on its head and turned it around to save the people and glorify God. Awesome, right? That's so cool. Now, how is it celebrated? Well, just really quickly... Uh, without getting into it too much, they do two things uh, right off the bat is they dress up and they read the book of Esther. And like they said, they dress up mainly because they Esther kind of uh, is a, the, disguises who she is. So they're trying to keep their secret, who they really are, a secret. That's why they wear costumes. And while they wear costumes, they, they come and they actually read the story of Esther. They sit down in their costumes, they read the story of Esther, and if you go, and you can actually YouTube this, when they read the story, every time Haman's name is brought up in the book, they boo it, because, you know, he's, he's the bad guy, right? So that's how they do it. There's a lot of eating and drinking involved. It says this in Esther chapter 9, verse 22, that when they celebrate it, they should make the days of this a feasting and gladness, okay? So there's a lot of food. So if you could imagine, like, to help you, to help illustrate this, this is kind of like a super holiday. Imagine if you took Christmas and Thanksgiving and um, a couple others and you meshed them into one major holiday and you did all those kind of celebrations at the same time. Lots of food, lots of reading after, it's a big party, everyone's happy. In fact, I've got to tell you that in the Talmud, the Jewish sacred text, there is a controversy because some of them say that you are supposed to drink until you can't tell the difference between Mordecai and Esther. I would tell you right now that that's probably inappropriate for church people. Okay? But what is appropriate is probably the last two things. is They are to give to the poor and they are to eat. It says this is on verse 22, is that you, these are days of sending gifts of food to one another. Don't you like it when people bring food to you? Yes! Awesome, right? In our culture, we tend to bring food to people when they're mourning or they're going through something bad, right? The other day, I gave someone pulled pork. And they're like, thanks. It was like, as if I wasn't suffering enough already. Right? <laughs> but they were to give gifts. You know, like we would do Christmas, except and they would just give it to the poor. It was awesome. And then they were also to do this. They were to give gifts of food. It's awesome. And in particular, they were to give these, right? These are called hamantash, I believe, right? And they're kind of like a jelly-filled donut. I love jelly-filled donuts. I love donuts, don't you? But I, yeah, thank you. 
I love the amen on that. <laughs> yeah. You know what I love? I love donuts, but I love a jelly-filled donut. You want to know why? Because when you look at a donut, you're like, oh, sweet, there's a, there's a Tim's donut. And you bite into it, and you just think it's a normal donut, and then you get that refreshing surprise of jelly. Maybe Boston cream. It's just like there's a sense of gladness in your heart, right? That's what this is, okay? This is called a hamantash. And the idea is, let me make sure I read it here. It's, it's like, it's, it's a three-cornered pastry that you have jelly in the middle, so it's sweet and tasty. And, and so the idea of the three corners is that's kind of what Haman's like. It's, there, there's two kind of traditions. It's either the three corners either represent Haman's ear, right? Like what Cliff said. Or refers to a hat that he wore, right? That it's, it's one of those things. And the jelly, actually, in the middle represents God's hidden presence. Isn't that kind of cool? <laughs> that you would associate God's hidden presence with a sweet surprise of jelly. <laughs> the idea, then, is that God's presence is hidden, and I've talked about that throughout the entire book. That Esther is a book where God is never mentioned, never sends a prophet, never sends a guy like Moses, right? There's no Isaiah, there's no pillar of fire, no Bernie Bush, there's nothing, right? And he kind of gives you the feeling that God's not in the book. He's hidden, but he's not, he's hidden. He's working behind the scenes, he's your silent guardian, which is what I've been trying to uh, get through to us as a church that in those moments where he is not obviously present where we don't feel his presence where we read our Bibles and it feels dry or we, don't, we, we just doesn't feel like he's moving trust me he's like the jelly in the center of the donut he's there you just can't see it and that's what these are here these are all about and I don't know if uh, Cliff mentioned this but Mary Reimer did a fantastic job of making a bunch of these. So they are there for you to eat after the service. There's even gluten-free, dairy-free ones for those of you who want to use that excuse not to try something new. Okay. So what does this all have to do with my relationship with Jesus? Okay. Well, put simply, I'm going to put it like this. Purim teaches us the indispensability and the requirement, the necessity of celebrating our deliverance. Let me make sure I got my notes here. I guess I want to make sure I got. Yes, here we go. Purim is a day, is a whole, is a holy habit of teaching us. How important it is for Christians not only to be saved, but to celebrate the fact that we are saved. While I cannot and would not recommend every kind of practice that goes on with Purim and how it is practiced today, I will say this, that the Bible demands that salvation must be celebrated. Remember when I told you about salvation, that salvation is, means to be set free made whole or delivered from whatever it is that is destroying you. 
That is what happens at Esther, and that is what is happening in this book. And it's for this amazing reason that you and I should celebrate the joy and the festivity that comes along with being saved. Do you know the number one, or I shouldn't say the number one reason, but do you know one of the reasons why Jesus went to the cross? Anyone want to take a guess? He did it for the party. You don't believe me? Bible says so. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? Joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus went to the cross for the joy. Now, you might not think so, especially in the moment, right? You might not think that, you know, his face set on the cross like Flint, dying and, you know, having to do, enduring all that whipping would think about the joy, but that's what he's doing. You might not think that that's true when a couple hours earlier he's asking God in the Garden of Gethsemane if there's another way you can do it and make it happen, but he looked forward to the other side of the cross where you are delivered, where you are made whole, where you are set free. He did it for the joy, the celebration. And that is really, really cool because I want to say to you that joy is an assault on the very throne of Satan himself. It's a direct insult to realism, dignity, and the austerity of hell. A lot of people today think that hell is the place where the party's at. But if that's true, you've got your GPS scrambled. The party is not down below, it's up above. Do you know what's down below? It's grim, it's sour, it's endless scolding, it's depression, it's death. There's nothing joyful about hell. And God's desire for your life and my life is to have his joy in you and that joy complete. Those who don't know how to rejoice and even resent everyone else for doing so are more like the Pharisees that killed Jesus than Jesus himself. Friends, this is Jesus suffered the way he did to bring us to a place of forgiveness, restoration, and he brings joy upon his life. I don't know if you recall the story of Zacchaeus, uh, one of the tax collectors who Jesus, uh, who, uh, who Jesus invited himself over to dinner. But at the end of that story, uh, Zacchaeus uh, comes to repentance and he gives his life to the Lord. And when Jesus says that, he smiles. There's joy. I want you to understand that if you read your Bibles, you will understand that Jesus is a person that loves, or God himself is a person that loves to celebrate salvation. I've been going through uh, the Old Testament in my own personal devotions, particularly uh, Deuteronomy uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. Now, how many of you have had a difficult time reading those books without falling asleep? Okay. All right. Well, you should read them again. <laughs> and the reason is, 
is because there's, it's, it reads, I don't know if you've caught this before, but it reads like it's a endless invitation to celebrate. Have you ever caught that? There is the celebration of uh, the unleavened bread, the celebration of the harvest, the Passover, the feast of the weeks, the feast of the tabernacle. There's always some sort of celebration. And if you read your Bibles, you know that at sometimes these celebrations are quiet and pensive, but you also know that they are full of laughter. They are full of uh, joy. They are full of food. And the thing is, is when you and I read the stuff, we start to get the sense that maybe God is looking for just about any excuse to fire up the barbecue and invite everyone over. Listen to what happens in the book of Nehemiah. In the book of Nehemiah, the priest Ezra reads and explains the law. And at the end of it, he says that the day is sacred. So remember how this works is that the people of God are exiled. And then in the story, eventually they go back and they rebuild the temple and they rebuild the city. And then in order to commemorate them and put themselves on the right track, they read the Bible and they say, and all the things that they were required to do. And this is what winds up happening at the end of it. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this is what? A holy day to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law, mainly because they realized that they failed short of it. Okay. Then they said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink wine and send proportions to anyone who has anything ready for this is a holy day to the Lord your God. Do not be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your what? Strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this is a holy day. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they understood the words that had been declared to them. Right? The people of God should be amazing at celebrating especially salvation. You want to know why? Because there's power in remembering the way that God saved you. Okay? And I'm going to prove it to you. Okay? <clears throat> I want to show you an example as we close up about Purim's power over Auschwitz, the Holocaust. Okay? While uh, I found the story, I found this very interesting. Uh, let me read it to you. One of the most courageous acts of Purim included no wine or pastries. There was, no one, there was no one to have, all the people that could celebrate were barely alive. The congregation consisted of 80 men crammed into a half-buried hut. Their bodies were racked with dysentery and typhus. Their clothing hung like rags on their, their frames. They survived on a daily portion of bread and soup. These were people who had no hope. They had no solution. They were prisoners of Auschwitz. And among them was a man named J.J. Cohen. He was a teenager living in the Polish ghetto when he was taken to the death camp. He survived the Holocaust and later remembered the day the prisoners celebrated Purim. He recalled how they took a a fragment of a potato 
in a small piece of bread and passed it from person to person in order to fill the tradition of giving gifts to one another. It fell on young Cohen to relate to others out of his memory the story of Esther. And here's how he described the moment. I'm going to put it on screen for you here. When I read aloud about Haman's downfall, the spark of hope deep inside every Jew's heart ignited into a flaming torch. I want you to understand that. So these are guys who have been beat down, tortured, depressed, beyond any kind of human dignity whatsoever. And they begin to recall the story of how God saved his people from Haman. And he says that when he finished, their hearts were like a fire. He goes on to say, when I finished, everyone cheered. And for a brief instant, the dreadful reality of the death camp had been forgotten. All the hunger and all the suffering had been receded. Having exerted all my remaining energy in reading of the story, because that's all I could do, I sat breathless. <sighs> but with my spirit soaring like a river overflowing its banks, the festive atmosphere and the, the vision of what? Redemption burst. There is power in celebrating when God saves us. What kind of story can cause victims to rise up like that? I want you to think about that for a minute. Knowing what we know about the Holocaust and knowing exactly what they went through, what kind of story can take people like that and encourage them and cause them to rise up? You know what kind of story can do that? A story of salvation. Amen? And you know what? I think where our culture is in need of a story like that. I mean, I, w I could say that about every era, but I don't think we start off the 2020s well, did we? And it hasn't, <laughs> it hasn't really been a better ride since, has it? People are worn out. People are scared. People need a salvation story. And we have one. And the thing is, is our story is not Esther, but it's Easter. About the cross. Because just like Esther's story, God took, in the person of Jesus Christ, God took everything that was meant for evil and flipped it down for its good. We have a really good redemption story because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And just like that, his enemies celebrated too. But we know that three days later that Jesus rose from the dead, conquering sin and giving freedom and salvation to all of us. And I believe that for the Christian, Purim tells us that we should celebrate the fact that we're saved. The fact that we know Jesus. And I'm going to say this, and I, I think it, you could push back on this a little bit, but I, I think Christians should be the best at celebrating. Our churches should be filled with laughter. 
there should be joy in the songs that we sing. I'm not saying that we should dive into revelry. I'm just saying that we have a lot of things to be grateful and grateful about the work of Jesus Christ. And I think that there is power in remembering the fact that we're saved and that God saved us from something. There is power in celebration and joy. And I would say to you that there is a, there is Purim, because Purim was a mandatory holiday, now I want you to catch that, they commanded that they do something joyful. Okay? <clears throat> joy is a holy habit. Something that you have to work on continually doing. And that's why, friends, I think that this is probably the best way to tie up Esther. Because Esther, we've been talking about how God saves someone or saves a people from doom and destruction. And right now we are entering into the Christmas season, a time of celebration. And I don't know how many of you feel what you feel about Christmas, whether you feel like it's a over-commercialized holiday, whether you feel like it's going through the motions, whether, whatever you think about it, but, you know, I feel those ways too. There's some, some years where I love Christmas and I'm in the Christmas spirit, and there's some years where I'm not. But I to tell you that just Christmas can be our version of Perm because it celebrates the day that Jesus, God came in as a baby, and that is your, and he saved you from death and darkness and destruction. So I would actually say to you that it's commanded for you to celebrate salvation. Now, I know that there's no, there's no verse in the Bible to say you're supposed to celebrate Christmas per se. But I want a great time to remind about the joy and the hope and the peace that Jesus brings. I would encourage you to celebrate well this Christmas season. And to end the, and the end of the series, and to end, and to end it, uh, on a good note, I want to do what they did for Purim. I want to, uh, when they celebrated Purim, they told the story of Esther, and they celebrated how God had delivered a people from bondage to light. And the other day, I was at Stan and Becky's house, and they are awesome. Have you have you ever gone to their house? Yeah, a few of you have. A few of you, right? They make the best food. Okay, but. Becky was telling me a story that had happened to them recently about how they saw someone come to salvation in Jesus. And I thought it would be a great way to end the service. So, Becky, would you just kind of share what God, what you saw God do through your family? Kids. 
kids, there's a lot going on, and every single obstacle was removed. And so, when I got the phone call, I was like, okay, yep, I will do it. And so I jumped right in. Um, it just felt like something that the Lord had just given me, that it was something that I needed to rise up to the challenge. So um, I quickly found out I was right. I'm not qualified and not capable. And so that made it so that I ended up praying over every single situation, which was many, and had to rely on a lot of people around me um, for help with all sorts of aspects with it. So the first year, I, I definitely felt like a fish out of water, uh, pun intended for that one. And the stress was quite high, but I found that I love that job. And I determined to use all the little things I had learned to do better the next year. So I thought the next year would be easier, right? But the next year was a whole lot harder. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. I spent an insane amount of time at the pool, which meant I had to work very closely with um, the chemical guy. He did the, the mechanics, the chemicals, all of that kind of stuff. And so Paul and I would often just stand there and we would be looking at the pool and, okay, what are we going to do about this? And we would brainstorm. And so with all of the issues that always came up, that meant that we had a lot of time to talk together. And actually starting COVID season out actually meant that we had a lot to talk about and talked about a lot of the the confusion, the fears, um, what does all of this mean? We, we talked about everything. And so along the lines of everything going wrong, one day he asked me how one of my failed ideas went. Um, I had planned a movie at the pool and I thought how cool to watch Soul Surfer for all the teens. Um, two people came and didn't want to watch a movie. And so I, I was really discouraged and was sharing that with him. And that conversation just opened up a door. So um, I told him I was really discouraged because it was a message that I believe our, our youth really need to hear. And he's like, what message is this? And so I just told him it was about how Bethany found her hope not in what she could do since she could no longer surf, but in Jesus Christ, and that we're all broken, that we've all broken the moral law and that we need a savior. So that conversation opened up the door, and a short while later, when I asked him how his day was, he, he was really frustrated that day, and everything was going wrong for him. And he, he told me he felt like God was trying to get his attention. Then he paused and he waited for me to respond. And I, I don't really know what he was expecting me to respond with, but I just told him, you're right. God is trying to get your attention and you better start listening. And 
then I told him, why don't you come to church this Sunday and come for a barbecue afterwards? So it turned out that that Sunday he had another friend that invited them to their church in Linden. So he went there. But the following week he came and he, he came for a barbecue afterwards. Um, and then we shared, Stan shared his testimony and it, it just was a really special time. So he came the following week and then he actually had a couple that invited them to Bethel in town. So that's, that's a full month of Sundays for somebody that does not attend church. And it's funny because it's the food that brought him. It was all these people invited him to go to their house. And it was over the food, the fellowship, the sharing that, that something started to change. So, um, by this time, the, the season at the pool was starting to wrap up. And then, after the season had finished, he sent me a text and thanked me for inviting him to church. And the other two couples had continued to, to pray for him and to speak into his life. And he said, because there were three couples that that took the step to, to tell about Jesus that he's now saved. On top of that, his wife was saved then. So, um, sorry. A couple months ago, he asked if we would go to Bethel Church as he and his wife were getting baptized. So that was just such an awesome opportunity to witness. But now my prayer, instead of just being like, Lord, help me get through another summer, is now, I'm not happy with just one person. We need more people to be saved. So um, the past few years have taught me a lot, a lot. And some of them, uh, some of the lessons are things like when you are put into a position where you are well aware you don't know what you're doing, this is a good thing. This is where you have the opportunity for God to really teach and guide you and for you to have to have help. I don't know why that's so hard, but to ask for help from those around you is a good thing. It forces you to rely on others, which builds those relationships. And those relationships are where we get a voice in people's lives. So um, all I did was open my house. I fed him and his wife, and we just opened our lives to them. Ultimately, I was just there for the ride that... God just beautifully worked the whole thing. So, yeah, it's, it's the simple things, the listening, the sharing a meal. Food really is very important. We all need it. Um, yeah, those are the things that bring us the opportunities to share our Lord with others. Thanks.
I asked her to share that because, uh, listen, Purim, Purim at its core is celebrating the idea of salvation. And in the story and the way of the practice, they tell the story of Esther and how Esther saves the people. But I think <clears throat> maybe during the Christmas season, we should tell each other the stories of our salvation stories. Amen? We encouraged each other. There is power in celebrating the fact that God has saved us. So please go into the Christmas season next week celebrating the fact that Jesus has saved us. Have some hamantash. Invite people over. Fill your calendar with all the busy Christmas stuff. Have people over, enjoy food, but do it in celebrating the fact that Jesus has saved us and recount the stories and what God has worked in your life. That's the takeaway from this morning's message. I hope you have a great day. Let's uh, end the service with uh, one more song.